Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of the Buffalo Bee. My name is Joe Biscaglia. Thanks, everyone, for joining me as the Bills get prepared to take on the New York Jets, what they hope will be a get-right game of sorts, even though the opponent last week, the Jaguars, was supposed to be the get-right game. They went down and lost probably one of the uh, more memorable games of the last few years here, just because of how much of a favorite they were, how the Jaguars really stymied their uh, the Bills' offensive attack the entire game, and certainly what uh, what it kind of meant moving forward for them, and you know for the most part the response from the Bills as we've uh, heard from them over the past few days after that loss and leading up to this game against the Jets. So we'll get into the matchup. We'll get into some of the stuff that that went on this week, maybe some of the stuff that went wrong against the Jaguars after we've taken a more enhanced look. Um, The one area that has generated a lot of buzz, a lot of heat throughout the past five days or so has been all centered around the offensive line. So, you know, I I tried to, uh, to get our guests Today, I tried to get our guest on last week. Uh, there was a bit of a, you know, had some had some stuff going on. So um, as it turns out, I was really glad that I wasn't able to get him on the, the show last week because this week I think his expertise in the area meant a whole heck of a lot uh, to maybe what a lot of the a lot of the conversation is uh, gives you a, another look at at how things are going and I'll just I'll just uh stop leading up the drama here. Um the our guest today is Eric Wood, the uh the longtime Bills offensive lineman. You hear him uh for the radio broadcasts uh for for the Bills and he's still he's still heavily involved. He he watches film all the time, goes back and watches film, tries to see exactly what's going on and stays up to date with with what's happening and he has the perspective of someone who played 
for Sean McDermott. And especially with how Sean McDermott has handled this week, which we'll get into, I wanted to get his expertise on that as well. So I'm super pumped to get Eric on the show because obviously when you have a longtime offensive lineman who has done the thing and has played for the actual coach that is uh, uh, that is operating the current roster, then obviously that uh, that expertise is worth its weight in gold. So we'll we'll talk to Eric in just a bit. But first, I wanted to get into maybe what went wrong and how the Bills have responded uh, with this past game against the Jaguars. You know, to basically every single player, they're, they're going, okay, we've moved on, moved on, moved on. It's well in the past, well in the past. But, you know, I think there is a bit of a trickle-down effect here from, from the game as to how things unraveled for them. Certainly there was no unraveling from a defensive perspective. You know, they'll they'll sit there and criticize themselves over not forcing an additional turnover, even though they got a turnover at the end of the first half to get the offense another shot at it. Um, but I don't think you can really criticize them too much more than that. So this really falls on the offense. And that's why going back and watching the film and seeing exactly what happened, why it happened, tracking how the Jaguars um, expressly played against the Bills. And because what they did is obviously going to be a bit of a feature that the Bills will have to defeat moving forward. And, you know, I think we've we've discussed this a lot, especially on the uh, the postgame show, talking about the cover two shell. And, and some of the, the overwhelming difficulties that the Bills have had with that specific approach. And the Jaguars didn't do that completely. Like, there was a bunch of cover three thrown in there. The majority of the time, it was cover two shell. Don't get me wrong. There was a, there was a lot of that. There was some cover three in there, some cover four sometime. sometimes. They were mostly in zone coverage. And certainly... Um, they kind of switched up the tendency that the Bills were expecting. Because I remember going into the week, uh, listening to guys like Stefan Diggs and Emmanuel Sanders. And the one thing that they said was they play zone early and they play man on third downs. Well, they didn't play a whole lot of man coverage in that game. I think I counted, let's see, let me go back to my notes. I counted nine snaps total where they were in man-to-man coverage. And... A, you know, a good percentage of that came in the late stages of the game, which we'll get into, which is kind of like a reason that there might be some slight optimism here. But for the most part, it was what the Jaguars were doing up front and certainly what they were doing on the back end. And they were very much staying within themselves uh, on the back end, which is what helped lead them to such an overwhelming result to where they stopped one of the most explosive passing attacks in the entire NFL. And make no mistake, the Bills, even though they struggled this past week, they still have an incredibly explosive pass attack. You know, Stefan Diggs is still a really darn good route runner, and he will, uh, he and uh, Josh Allen will eventually turn things around and get on the same page. Maybe not ever to the same degree as they did last year, where there were just, you know, 12 catch games were kind of the, the regular and, you know, it was just a very prolific season from receiver standards uh, for Stefan Diggs. So I don't know that it will necessarily get back to that level just because teams will will play you differently as they start to learn more and more about your offense. 
but he's still extremely talented. Emmanuel Sanders has really kind of taken a step back in terms of statistical production, but he's still getting open. And and it's it's not as though it's a it's an issue where he's struggling to separate. Like that's that's not a thing just yet. I, I think it's more of a product of him and being in this offense and being played a certain way uh, by by the opponents. Cole Beasley kind of looks a little slower out there, but he's still a good asset against zone coverage. And his, uh, I, I think his ribs injury is is kind of uh, making him hurt a little, and maybe that's having an impact on on some of his routes. And then from there, you know, Gabriel Davis, whenever he's in there, he can he can get some separation. Dawson Knox seems like he'll be ready to return. So so that that all is fine. So they'll they'll probably get back on track. But seeing how the Jaguars defended them, I think, is the most um, illuminating illuminating part to how we analyze what the Bills will do moving forward. So on the back end, a lot of zone, like I said, cover two shell, cover three, some instances of cover four, um, not really a ton of blitz heavy stuff. I know a lot of, um, you know, there was some rhetoric out there that said, oh, you know, they were just, they were sending a a bunch of pressure at, uh, at, at the Bills and it was overwhelming them. Well, Yes and no. I mean, they weren't really blitzing a ton. But blitzing and having overwhelming pressure are two different elements here. I do think the Jaguars had overwhelming pressure in that game. But they did it in a sneaky, strategic way because of how much the offensive line was kind of all over the place. Um, in terms of you know just injuries, Spencer Brown was down due to a back injury, and the Bills had to go without John Feliciano as they put him on on injured reserve ahead of the Jaguars game. So that meant the Bills shuffled around sixty percent of their of their offensive line, their usual starting offensive line. So Bucker was in at left guard, Cody Ford was in at right guard, Daryl Williams was moved back outside to right tackle for the second straight week, and. The results were not great. There was a lot of communication errors. And the one thing that the Jaguars were really trying to do in that game was to get the Bills to miscommunicate along the offensive line. And you would see times where uh, one of their defensive ends would would drop back into coverage. And this is the type of stuff that the Bills like to do a lot of times. But they would drop their defensive end back into zone coverage and then rush a linebacker or a safety to take the place. So they're still only rushing four people, but they're just trying to overload one of the sides. And that led to one of the... um, That led to one of the big time pressures where it seemed like Cody Ford just didn't even realize a guy was looping around to get an instant pressure on on Josh Allen. That was probably Cody Ford's worst rep, but it was a lot. It was kind of a an outright failure by the entire offensive line to communicate back and forth. And that was that was a big piece of the puzzle. The Jaguars were also running a bunch of twists, stunts uh, along the defensive line that that made sure that the Bills had to be on it. Otherwise, they would be getting some pressure in there. So a couple of the the combinations that didn't really look all that great. Like the Deion Dawkins-Ike-Butker combination really struggled all game from a communication standpoint. Um, Whether it was trying to run the ball, uh, they just never really seemed like they were getting on the same page as to when, if they were were rushing it, when the... um, 
when Butker would release from the initial block and Dawkins would take on the block because a lot of times you would see the, the line kind of crashing to the right, the right side, and it would lead to some areas where uh, Dawkins would lose that block. And, you know, you can't really tell whose fault it is uh, between the two or if the Jaguars just spotted something on film and, and said, OK, I'm going to I'm going to go do a, uh, an inside rush. I'm going to really veer to the left to try and put some pressure on these two. But uh, but that, that was a problem on a few of the running plays that ended up uh, going awry. And then from a pass blocking perspective, you know, that those those communication errors are kind of how it unraveled a bit. But there's also this part of it, too. Josh Allen hung on to the ball a pretty long time. I mean, the Bills were trying to generate a quick passing attack because they didn't have any semblance of a running game with, with, their, rushing, with their running backs. So they were trying to generate a quick passing attack. And that really, uh, that kind of brought down the average of his time to throw or get sacked. But there was a lot of times where if Allen was trying to open things up with that zone coverage that the Jaguars ran so often that they would, that, that Allen would hang on to the ball, just wait, 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 try and try and, you know, allow his receivers the time to find that open spot against a pretty well-executed zone coverage. And in doing so, a lot of those pressures that you saw were after three seconds. And, you know, it's, you would like to think that the offensive lineman will just block to infinity, but the defensive line, you know, even, even the Jaguars who have some, have some good pieces like Josh Allen's a really good pass rusher for the Jaguars and Miles Jack, their linebacker, whenever they brought him with, with some pressure, um, he's really good at at getting weaving his way in, and you know Taven Bryan. He hasn't been hasn't really lived up to his first round billing, but he was still pretty effective as as a pass rusher as opposed to a run stuffer, and that's kind of how they utilized him him well. And then even Kalevon Chason, um, their former first round pick, I think he even had had some uh, okay reps along the lines, but. When Allen is hanging on to that ball, like you're not you're not going to have all of these instances of just perfect protection. I, I went back and, and tracked a lot of, of what the Bills were doing in that in that Jags game. And I do think some of the culpability has to fall on Allen. Like not completely, don't get me wrong, but I, like he was still doing enough, like before the turnovers began. I think he was doing enough to where um, it, it he was trying to get things jump started, and it just it just wasn't firing, and and the Jaguars were playing them too well. But when you look at a lot of the pressures that were allowed to Josh Allen, a lot of them came after three seconds, and there were a lot of opportunities for the offensive line in front of him to have successful blocks in one on one situations for three seconds or more. And that's why, like, when we go back and look at the offensive line play, like some some people, like, it wasn't great. You know, it was probably 
slightly below average is the way that I would put it. Because the normal standards of offensive line play is if you're if you're blocking a guy for three to three and a half seconds one on one, you're doing a really good job. Um, but if if you're allowing that before the three seconds or even like before three point two five maybe um, right around right around that range, if you're allowing it in under three seconds, it's it's not a great rep for you. So as long as you give the quarterback the time to and, and space to kind of do things back there, you know it's 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 it should be enough. But it was just a compilation of things where Allen was hanging on to the ball, the offensive line had to block for quite some time, and you mesh those two things together. And with how the Jaguars are are playing them and how well they were executing on the back end, it led to a disastrous day. So I, I went back and I tracked like. Successful one-on-one blocks that lasted three seconds or longer for individual offensive linemen. By my count, Mitch Morse had seven. Cody Ford had seven of those. Deion Dawkins had seven of those. And Darrell Williams had six of those. So when you have all of those successful 1v1 blocks of three seconds or more, you're like, okay, well, they probably should have been able to move the ball a bit better, which is why I think this is more of a convoluted issue than just the offensive line screwing up in front of them. I think it's they, they are absolutely culpable when we're talking about the running game because they were horrible against the Jaguars in that respect. No push up front. Um, the running backs had a very low yards before contact average. Even Tommy Sweeney screwed up where he he pulled in front of the hole and just completely whiffed on the block. And that's what that's what created a, a negative play there. So, you know, they they do deserve uh, some blame there. But I don't think that their pass rushing snaps were as horrible as, you know, maybe we first thought when when you have, you know, the impulse of the game and everything along those lines. However, I've harped on a lot of the negative stuff. But the one area that leads me to believe that the Bills will probably turn it around against this defense is this little snippet of the fourth quarter. Well, really a lot of the fourth quarter. I noticed uh, that Josh Allen, rather than hanging in the pocket and really trying to allow his receivers to do the work for him, he kind of took matters into his own hands. And that's one of the ways that I think the Bills will be able to consistently defeat these zone-heavy approaches where they're only rushing four people at, at, at the team. You know, One of the obvious ways is to run the ball better because if they're only rushing four people, then obviously it's going to give them more potential to try and get, generate some yardage when, when they're trying to run the ball with the running backs. But the Bills just weren't able to do that because they didn't get the push up front. But I think it's kind of a the, the running back attempts thing is not a catch-all here. I think it's got to be a compilation of a couple of different things. So that, plus I think moving out of the pocket and getting the zone defenders to move with the quarterback is was certainly a key when the Bills were starting to move the ball consistently in in the fourth quarter especially, and certainly a key moving forward. Now, the one area that Josh Allen has grown the most, or really not the most, but one of the areas that he has grown a lot 
is in not allowing himself to immediately leave the pocket. That was a big problem for him in his rookie season. He would he would leave it prematurely and there would be a lot of meat left on the bone and that and then teams actually began to start playing him that way. And so he he really just hammered it into himself that, you know, stay in the pocket uh, unless things really start to unravel. But I think with a game plan that the Jaguars were effectively implementing, I think that kind of calls for a little bit of a, a different approach. And so you saw when Allen started moving outside the pocket, you could see it on the film. The zone defenders of the Jaguars were starting to creep toward him. And it's it's obvious because he's he's a he's a mobile threat. That's what he does. And you have to account for that side of his game. But and if you're just gonna stay in your same zone, then that's you're allowing the potential for Allen to take off and run and get yards that way. But it's kind of a it's kind of a double-edged sword here for for the defense because when he's getting outside the pocket, then that's allowing these zone defenders to creep towards the quarterback, thereby creating angles for the receivers to find little spaces that didn't exist previously that now were there because of the the vacated areas that the uh, uh, that the defenders just left to go try and defend Allen with with him running the ball. So that is one way that they really started to to seep in and get some yardage. Like there was a a big uh, pass play to Stefan Diggs. I think it went for twenty eight, um, where Diggs got past that first layer of the cover two shell and just kind of nestled himself in between two defenders. And then with Allen kind of getting outside the pocket, it it uh, drew their attention forward and to the right a little bit. And Allen was able to sneak it in for a, a really big pass play. Um, it probably should have had it to Emmanuel Sanders, if we're being honest, on that fourth down play. Sanders was open and and he found the, the soft spot. The defenders were moving with Allen, and that that was there for the taking. But it kind of seemed like Allen wanted to get the ball to Stefan Diggs over the middle of the field because he thought like that could be a bigger play. Um, but even before that, there was another throw to Sanders that uh, where he got outside the pocket. I think that one went for 18. So they were definitely moving the ball a lot more consistently and finding these these soft spots that were created by Allen moving around a bit. So that I believe is a source of optimism for the Bills to moving forward to, to going up against this team. Those good plays were uh, had the rug pulled out from underneath them because of the turnovers in the second half, which are completely on Josh Allen. All three of them were completely on Allen. And you don't want to crush the guy for too long because of how much he means to the, the grand scheme of things. And because I don't think those are necessarily weekly errors anymore. But the first turnover was just a bad throw to Cole Beasley. The second uh, the second interception is one that he should not be throwing under any circumstances. And he's learned that lesson before. So that that is a complete non-starter. And then the fumble play is him reading the defensive end incorrectly and then thinking that he could just do it all himself. And then he got the, the ball stripped from him. So all three of those are on him. And it really undid a lot of the success they were starting to have. And even Stefan Diggs, I think this week, 
um, alluded to it uh, during his media availability where you you saw he's like he he even said like yeah I, th- I think we were starting to get it going in the fourth quarter and they absolutely were so now it's just taking that and moving it forward so what can we expect from this team moving forward i think getting josh allen outside the pocket will will certainly help things if if they start to see cover two shell and and cover three just to just to move some defenders around and and go about it that way because they're they're going to be ready for that approach because that is the current blueprint on on how to stymie the offense i think the other thing that's going in their favor is they're they're probably going to get spencer brown back the uh, the offensive tackle um who has missed the last couple of games due to a back injury he practiced in full on thursday i'm recording this before practice on friday so uh, but it does seem like it's moving in the right direction. And having him back in the lineup at right tackle means Daryl Williams goes back inside to right guard and you immediately upgrade two spots right away. So when you have those two things, that helps with not only pass protection, but certainly run blocking. And I think we are going to see a heavy emphasis on running the ball this week. Maybe not like the one game that comes to mind when I when I think of that is week eight against the Patriots last year. Where the year before, or the week before, it was the Bills' 18-10 win over the New York Jets. And in that game, they threw the ball a ton. I think it was like 43 pass attempts to 15 rushing attempts. And they just weren't able to punch the ball in. There was a lot of, it was a six field goal game. There was a lot of drives that that just went, went to the wayside because the Bills couldn't couldn't put it all together. And they really didn't have a semblance of a run game outside of a a 26-yard rush, one rush by Zach Moss. So that next week, they had a concerted effort into getting their ground game in order because they knew that that was kind of the key to get them moving forward. And I don't think that they expected to run the ball as often as they did in that Patriots game because the split between pass to run in that game was 28-18 to in favor of running the ball. But they had such great early success that they just stuck with it and 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 went went along with it and allowed the running game to take them to a pretty close victory over the Patriots. This time around, I don't expect them to completely flip their percentages and have the running game and giving running back carries to um, a, a, a higher percentage of the time than they do pass. But I do think that they'll have a concerted effort early on to get it established, reacclimate, um, reacclimate the Jets to having defend to defend that run. And the Jets do have a a pretty solid front. Like Quinn and Williams is super good. C.J. Mosley, the linebacker, is really good. Um, I have to pronounce his name correctly. Uh, Fadakasi, uh, right in the middle, their one technique. He he's he's also their team captain. He shows some talent. Franklin Myers at, at the edge. I think he's a he's a pretty solid talent. Uh, they just they just lack the rotation that maybe the Jets want, and they lack the the true pass rusher that the Jets want. So I do think the Bills will will really try to get after it and get some early stuff going. I I also think Matt Breida will be active for this game more so because. It made the decision easier for them because Jake Kumaro is on the reserve COVID list as of Tuesday. And unless he gets cleared in time for Sunday, then that's a huge special teams piece that will not be available to them. So Matt Breida in his first two games active, he had 50% of uh, special team snaps around there 
So I would expect him to be in the lineup no matter what. But even still, that would be another running back available for them, as long as Zach Moss can play. He practiced on Thursday, and we don't know if if he'll be available for the game on on Sunday, but uh, definitely took a, a big step forward on Thursday and could be cleared out of concussion protocol in time. So I think the the offensive line enhancements this week with Spencer Brown likely returning and also just the overall emphasis like Sean McDermott <laughs> and we'll I'll get into this with with Eric Wood a bit but Sean McDermott is usually does the same stuff at press conferences right I mean it's usually just a very get in get out I'll tell you what I know about the injuries, which is not much. Um, it's either day-to-day, week-to-week. Uh, don't really give too much about the opponent. Don't give really too much about the game plan. Don't really uh, criticize your own team. Usually going along with the, the lines of, you know, there's there's some plays that were good and some plays that that they'll want to have back. And, you know, th- that, that, that goes for everybody. That's kind of his persona at press conferences. But when he wants to get a message across and he wants his team to know that he's putting a public message across, it's a pretty interesting thing. And that's what we got on Wednesday from McDermott. Hearing him really criticize the running game and their failure to do it consistently dating back to last season, that's going to stick with a lot of these players. And that's why I believe we'll see a... Not a, not a humongous emphasis, but a renewed emphasis on becoming a more efficient running team when they're handing the ball off. So that starts up front because the yards before contact the last two weeks have been horrible. Before that, not bad. The running backs need to be better. I would not be surprised to see Matt Breida get some early snaps just to see if they can get a little bit of a different thing because he, pro- he provides that speed option. Even still, you know, I think their veer would be to want to get their two young high draft pick investments going and in the right direction this season with Zach Moss and Devin Singletary. But if single if uh, Matt Breida starts to show a little bit of juice, then this is a Bills team that is not afraid to ride the hot hand. We've seen that time and time again with, with their running back situation. So if Breida gets gets going a little bit, then it could uh, give him some more opportunities as the game goes along. But they want to try and figure things out because they know that that is the most sustainable way to get teams to start to creep up and not just drop back into this seven-person zone coverage to where it's difficult to throw the ball intermediate to long. The rolling out of the pocket it's good every once and again, and it certainly opens things up. But it's not sustainable because it's if you do it every play, then it's going to be easily defense. The, be- the, the path of least resistance here to get these teams out of their defenses is to have a more effective running game. And that's going to be a big key for them moving forward, and, and we'll, uh, we'll see if, if they can actually do it because you know McDermott kind of laid down the, uh, the gauntlet on Wednesday. So we'll see. How they respond. And that's part of uh, what I wanted to talk with Eric Wood about for obvious reasons. The offensive line, Sean McDermott, everything like that. So when we uh, when we return, we'll uh, we'll hear from Eric and hear exactly what's going on with the Bills offensive line and, and what they're going to do moving forward. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, so we talked a lot about Sean McDermott's comments in the beginning part of the show, but I wanted to get somebody on that uh, really knows offensive line play through and through. Who better to do it than someone who played for the Bills his his entire career uh, keeps up with the Bills, obviously, because he's the color commentator for the Bills radio broadcast. Joined me now on, on the Buffalo Beat is Eric Wood. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for jumping on the podcast because I'm sure a lot of people will want to know what the heck you have to say on this topic in particular because of how big of a topic it has been this past week. Yeah, I've gotten a few requests this week, but it's an honor to come on your show. I listen to it most weeks in preparation for the broadcast. I feel like the podcast scene, especially when I'm on planes traveling to wherever the games are, the podcast uh, scene that that you do and a number of other media guys around the Bills do uh, are an excellent way to prep for those games. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Um, and it honestly, like the the way that this whole season has kind of unfolded for the Bills here, um, it it's it's kind of wild to see how the offense has had these little dips and and really have kind of charged forward other times. And a lot of that all has to do with obviously what the passing offense does because they're a pass first, pass second team. But the running game has always been this kind of undercurrent of Sean McDermott has always talked about wanting to be a better rushing team. They just haven't been, whether it be the offensive line play up front, uh, the running backs not really uh, reading their keys well. Um, so from your perspective, what have you seen from this running game and what exactly uh, has gone wrong to this point? Well, let me first say most defensive minded coaches want the offense, their own offense to have a run game component and that. A lot of people would say, well, that's because they want to suck the clock out. They make their defense look better. And now, hey, this defensive-minded head coach has this great defense because they suck the air out of the football while on offense. They ran the ball. Maybe they didn't score a lot of points, but, hey, they didn't score a lot on us. It makes you still look good as a defensive-minded head coach. 
But kind of on the flip side of that, and for someone that has tremendous job security in Sean McDermott, maybe the reason he wants the run game to be more efficient and not necessarily run the ball as much as you pass it in today's mm-hmm. NFL, but to be more efficient is because he understands how easy it can be to prepare for an offense that is only one dimensional. And so when you look at it from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense that Sean McDermott would want a run game because when you face a team like Tennessee, who in the second half were actually more effective throwing the ball, but that was because the play action was getting their linebackers to suck down the field. They were replacing them with Julio Jones and A.J. Brown across the middle, and now all of a sudden you see those plays break loose. Well, to go back to the Bills, what's been wrong with their run game? Well, from an offensive line perspective, if you're not running the football a lot, it's hard to get a run game going. And you know as well as anybody, Joe, you've been around football forever. Most big runs are in the second half of a game. Most of those seven, eight, nine-yard runs are when the offensive line has had a chance to kind of get their feet wet in the run game a little bit, see how they're fitting those blocks. The running backs start pounding the secondary a little bit. Maybe it's the wide receivers, tight ends, cracking on safeties, whatever it may be. That helps you as the day goes on, and you can't just say, hey, we're going to throw the ball the first 20 plays of the game, and then, hey – why aren't you getting five yards of carry now? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't quite work like that. And from a running back's perspective, I haven't played the position, but even on a vision standpoint, and when I went back and watched the film last week, I thought they ran they ran an outside zone in the second half of the game uh, to the left side. And if Zach Moss cuts it back, there's a great haul. It's probably eight yards. They were bringing slot pressure off the Bills' right side. So he was probably running away from that. Had he got to look at the the pictures on the sideline, he probably would have cut it back up the next time. Well, they never get back to it because Mm -hmm. they're not that type of offense. And so it's hard to, A, figure out what you're good at, B, make those in-game adjustments in the run game. And you know what? The Bills had ups and downs on offense this year, and they still enter week eight last week. Number one in the NFL, week eight or week nine? What, what week are we in? We're and, entering week 10 somehow. Okay, so week nine <laughs> last year. Last week, week nine, they enter the game, and they're number one in the NFL in scoring offense. And, mm-hmm. and you could say what you want about the quality of opponents. that They're number one. And mm-hmm. so it's not a huge thing that needs to be fixed. When you have 60% of your offensive line shuffled around, when you have a backup tight end in there, those things contribute – to a lack of run game and what's always going to contribute to a lack of run game is when you're backing up through sacks and penalties and when you have 12 penalties in the game i understand they're not on offense but when you have 12 penalties in the game and you have three turnovers that's that's going to play a tremendous factor yeah it's i mean it, it's also been kind of interesting to me to track the the yards before contact stat and it's not a perfect stat because a lot of times there's there's other issues around it but the bills i mean last year their yards before contact for their running backs was not good. They ranked near near the bottom of the league. This year, before the past two games, it's actually been pretty – it's been better. Um, these last two weeks, it's been bad, like uh, under half a yard uh, per, per carry per contact. Um, is that more of a product of just getting – flat out beat up front is it schematically what the Jaguars were trying to do with them I noticed they did a lot of twists and stunts to you know really confuse them because they had so many new pieces or is that kind of the running backs just not um fitting what what they need to do it's such a convoluted issue yeah and I hate to ever say it's a combination of a lot of things because yeah. I hate when people give me those yeah answers. for sure so I'll, I'll I will expand upon that and to your point uh, yes that can be a convoluted stat but over the course of a season 
you know, those outliers on both ends of the spectrum, you know, maybe the running back breaks it out the backside and goes completely untouched for 15 yards. Well, right. the offensive line didn't do anything good. And there might be a play where the tight end whiffs, maybe the running back uh, bobbles the ball and gets hit. Well, those kind of those outliers kind of all you know, nix each other out. So when you look at a course of a season, that is a stat that we are cognizant of. Like, are mm -hmm. we doing our job up front to move guys to open up holes to where they're not getting hit. And over the last couple of weeks, teams have lit up the bills with movement and pressures and they're not staying still. And yes, they're in a two shell a lot of times. And you say we should be able to run the football, but they're moving around a good amount. They're not sticking with the run game to necessarily allow those guys to get their feet wet, get their fits. Like I talked about earlier. And then part of it's play calling and, and I'm not, against these play calls that they worked extremely well two years ago with Devin Singletary, some wham schemes where, okay, you're going to let a, this always used to happen to Kyle Williams because mm -hmm. he was our best defense alignment for so long. They'll let him go on a play. They'll crush him with a tight end coming across the formation. Gronkowski usually do it to him a bunch tight end comes down. Well, then the running back goes right off of him. Well, if the tight end misses that block, that's a five yards loss contact that you might not go down there but that's where the contact was made that mm -hmm. happened in the second half of the jags bills game last week tommy sweeney doesn't get the block and that's you know yeah that was that, a rough one that was a rough one right it, but then there's also times where the offensive linemen are are getting beat in the first two run plays of the game i actually went back and watched the film again today in preparation for this the first two run plays of the game the backside three technique whether and, and I don't know how they're being coached anymore. You know, I, I play Bobby Johnson was the assistant line coach when I was there. Mm -hmm. I never played under Brian Dayball, so I can speak on these things, but I, I don't know exactly what happened. But either Ike Butker didn't get enough of the three technique to allow Deion Dawkins to get under him, but the three te the backside three technique on the first two run plays of the game made the play right at the line of scrimmage. Mm -hmm. And I, so I don't know if that's a technique thing, I don't know if it was Deion's fault, but regardless. It's, it's a combination of teams are lighting them up and bringing a lot of pressure. And the last two teams were one win teams. So what do they have to lose? They can right. just light you up. And if the top gets taken off the defense, whatever, we'll live with it. Mm -hmm. But we're going to just continue to bring pressure. Yeah, I, it's it's something you said is pretty interesting to me. You know, getting the feet wet, getting in the flow of things. It, we often hear that about quarterbacks uh, trying to trying to get in the rhythm of a passing game and, and everything like that. But we we don't often think of that in the terms of offensive linemen um, and specifically for this reason with, with running games. If, if you are a member of the chiefs offensive line, the bills offensive line um, less so the, well, basically those are the top two here. Um, is it pretty difficult to get into the flow of it? Like if all of a sudden it's just like, okay, we're starting the second half, boom, run, 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 run after not doing it for the entire first half. Definitely. And and you know what else I noticed throughout the rest of my career or towards the later part of my career when we weren't in pads as much in practice, mm -hmm. you're not getting as much contact in practice. So you go a week in between games. It was tougher to perform right at the start because you're not you, we're not doing things in practice that we're seeing in the games. You're not seeing that physicality. A lot of times we don't even have pads on. And so you know, it takes you a second to kind of get your feet wet. Well, on the first play of the game, Josh hold, Josh Allen holds the ball for almost four seconds. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a design play call. You know, I know Stephon Diggs was early at the beginning, open at the beginning of the play, and he kind of had his hand up waving. And so I don't know if that's a decoy. Like I said, I'm not in the huddle. I'm not in the meetings. To me, 
if you're going to throw the ball for the first eight plays of the game, the first few, you got to get rid of that ball quick and it, or maybe move the pocket because to expect, you know, on, on any given play, if they bring four rushers and we have five blockers, there's going to be three one-on-ones. You're, so you're expecting three guys to all win one-on-ones. And, Joe, uh, I say this facetiously, you, you grade one-on-one pass pro in training <laughs> camp. You know how hard it is to win one-on-ones. Oh, sure. Team, you're going to throw the ball and you're going to drop back and sit there on seven consecutive plays to start a game, just get rid of that ball a little bit quicker, help mm -hmm. those guys out. And everyone was riding Ike Butker for getting driven back into Josh Allen. Like, I didn't think that was that bad of a block. It took mm -hmm. three seconds for him, and he was still in between Josh and the quarterback. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the former offensive lineman to me, just so ready to defend somebody. Sure. But I honestly didn't think it was that bad of a block. Yeah, and I also thought – and. This is just from me going back to the film. I thought Cody Ford got kind of a bad rap for that game because, you know, there were I counted seven different times that that he had a one on one block that lasted over three seconds and he sustained. And that's really stinking good, especially because of how much he struggled against Washington and Deron Payne in week three that led to his benching. So, it, you know, it, there were there were some other, you know culprits in this game like Daryl Williams really struggled against the edge pressure like he had been earlier in the season stuff like that but like you know I, I often I often this is why I love the film and this is why I started doing it because you see things from an offensive line because it game day it's like okay it's either great or awful right there yeah. but it's usually closer to that middle area and I think I think that even though the Bills struggled to run the ball I think it was kind of closer to that middle area too yeah, we always would say, especially as offensive line play goes, it's never as good as it seemed. It's never as bad as it seemed mm -hmm. whenever you turn on the film. You could think you had the worst game of all time, and when you look at the film, there's a lot of positives. And when you think you had the best game ever, there's probably a lot of tech, little technique stuff that you're going to get rode pretty hard on. And so never either think too highly or too low of yourself in those instances. And to your point about Cody Ford – He's a heavy-handed, heavy-footed guy, mm -hmm. and when he misses, he misses, and he doesn't necessarily always have the athleticism to recover. So when he misses, it looks a little bit worse than maybe a Darrell Williams in there who is right. used to moving in space, you know, and he's a little bit longer. And so those guys have a little bit more wiggle room. And that being said, let me talk about something positive just because he plays my former spot. Mitch Morse has been incredible. He's been season. awesome this season. He has been absolutely great. I, I brought it up to Sean McDermott on one of the pregame interviews, and he said that Mitch is playing with like a different uh, ferocity to him. Like He's playing really ferocious on the field. Like They wanted more of that out of him, and I don't know if it was head injuries from years past or whatever mm -hmm. it was that was holding him back a little bit. He's playing physical. He's great in pass pro. He's always been athletic. Uh, to me – He's a Pro Bowl center. Wow, wow, yeah. I mean, he's he's been locked in all season long. I, there's there's no debate with that, and it's it's such an unheralded position, as you know, um, where if you don't know and you don't take the time to look what they're doing, uh, you don't see exactly what is going on. And you know, he's he's been right on it to your point. So yeah, he he's been awesome. I did want to pick your brain about you know the the Sean element to all this because you played for Sean. Um, and when he – most of his press conferences kind of go the same way, right? It's usually I'm going to not say anything and, and you know, I'm going to I'm gonna protect my guys and, and we're going to go on to the next one and just talk about this opponent and, and talk up this opponent. But 
there's every once in a while where Sean just wants to get something across. And I feel like this past Wednesday about the running game in particular um, is is one of those moments. Because he's like, you you look at the film all the way back to last year, and it's like, whoa, this is throwing throwing uh, throwing it all out there. So that because he knows his guys are going to see this. So when when you have a coach that that does that, and you know that's respected as Sean McDermott is in that locker room, what does that do to from a player perspective? Oh, you're you're going to put emphasis on it. Everyone from the offensive coordinator all the way down. To, to the guys playing on the field, you, you're going to put an emphasis on the run game. And I've I've stood by that even when Sean says that, that doesn't necessarily mean there needs to be a perfect run-pass balance. Mm-hmm. He just wants it to be effective enough that you can hold defenses honest. As we started off this conversation, you've got to keep uh, defenses at least feeling that there's a threat of the run game coming. And so he obviously was trying to get his point across. I'm sure it got across. And <laughs> – one of my favorite things about Sean is, and this is why I think he's so good as a coach, is he treats everybody so great. I mean, you talk about his press conferences. He doesn't give you guys a whole lot, but I hear him call you guys by name. You know, mm-hmm. they just like little signs of respect that he gives you guys. And I know he's not perfect and nobody is, but I, I actually appreciate that. At least he makes an effort. And I know he doesn't love media availability, but he's at least going to say, you know, call you by name. He started off his press conference like, hey, you know, respect the um, – uh, competitive deal, like as far mm-hmm. as me talking about injuries, whatever it is, I, I feel like he's actually respectful in those media appearances. But all that being said, um, he's going to try to he, he's trying to get under their skin a little bit. But sorry, one of my favorite things about Sean, he treats everybody so well in the organization. He treats you so well as a player. I mean, he's going to ask you about your significant other by mm-hmm. uh, by our first name, ask you about your kids by their names but you're never going to feel comfortable. I mean, I re-signed with the team in 2017. I didn't miss a snap all year. And when they were messing with Vlad and John Miller and everybody else, like you never feel comfortable. Interesting. To where that's where he gets you to play, um, you know, to push your limits as a player because you know you can be replaced at any time. Wow. That's really interesting because if, if you know, that year, if there was anyone that was like firmly – in their spot and we think a lot of people will be like oh eric eric is good well but, and, and I, I say that like yeah. i signed a contract before the season they weren't going to cut me but i mean you want to talk about you, you felt like you were disappointing him for my position a, a lot of other guys it was i mean you could get benched at any moment look at mitch morris last year the bills made him the highest paid center in the year uh, highest paid center in the league three years ago and then last year he's healthy to come back and he's a healthy scratch and they leave John Feliciano in there who was a journeyman guy that they signed, you know, from Oakland. And so mm-hmm. he's not afraid to ruffle the feathers a little bit. And, and honestly, from the outside looking in, I absolutely love it. Sometimes when you're playing for him, it's, it's uncomfortable, but that's good. Like mm-hmm. it, you could be a jerk and you could be, you could keep your thumb on guys like a, a Belichick maybe, or you could treat people really well, but always demand excellence. It's funny you you bring up that that Mitch Morse thing because I think the week that he was the the healthy scratch or he was on the sidelines was the week that they established the run last year, which was the Patriots game. I think right. I think it was week eight. Um, so that that's a funny little link. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is I, I know you've gone through a bunch of different things throughout your playing career, like, um, and I'm sure you've gone through stretches where 
the offensive line and the run game as a whole just wasn't doing it. And you, you could tell you were in a rut and, and you have to get yourself out of that. So how difficult is it uh, for teams that, you know, maybe pass first teams, what have you, just, just in general, how difficult is it for an offensive line as a unit to, to get out of the doldrums when you, you're just not winning up front as much as you would like to? Yeah, and, and, and a lot of times it's one guy in each play. So all you're mm-hmm. thinking about is, man, if we would have just got that one block here, if we would have got that one block there, if they would have cut the ball back here, we had a big opening. So you're always playing that what-if game, and then I feel like once it clicks, it clicks, and you're good to go the rest of the year. I mean, in 2017, we had a sit-down with me and Shady and Rick Dennison and Sean McDermott, and Sean McDermott's right in front of Rick Dennison said, what's the difference between last year and this year when you guys were the number one rushing offense in the league the last two years, what's the difference? And it wasn't a shot at Rick. He just wanted to let the players honestly probably take some ownership and say, okay, well, if you guys are going to pick the plays, you better make them work, which is a tactic that honestly did work Mm -hmm. because then you're like, okay, well, if we're going to be saying what we want to happen, we better make it work. And, And so we started getting to some more inside zone concepts, a few more power concepts that we ran with Greg Roman, which was successful. We weren't great at that time at the outside zone. That being said, you know, they, they just got to figure out what, what their identity is going to be as an offense. I feel like the last couple years, their most successful plays were kind of those pin and pull plays. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen a whole lot of those this year. Now they're a lot easier to run under center and the bills are not under center that much anymore. It would not surprise me to see in this game, even if they're running no huddle, even if they're throwing the ball at the same clip to see a lot more plays from under center. And it just gives you more variety in the run game. Yeah, that that's a, a great point. And I'm just envisioning like the first year that they had Mitch Morse there, uh, just him just coming out like a bat out of hell to just, just crush down on a linebacker or whoever's out there. I mean, those are the types of stuff that, that they were really good at a couple of years ago. Yep, exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, Eric, this has been absolutely awesome, illuminating. It's the type of expertise that I knew you would just absolutely crush because obviously this this is your profession. So <laughs> so I think you know a little a thing or two about this whole thing. For sure. And, <laughs> and I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate you letting me do it because uh, I'd, I'd rather be the one to get to kind of defend it and analyze it than Maybe somebody else. Absolutely. Well, Eric uh, does a great job on the radio broadcast, so be sure to check those out. And, of course, all the all the stuff he does throughout the week for, for Bills.com. So, Eric, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Yep, my pleasure, Joe. All right, so as predicted, Eric Wood, just money on the topic. I mean, how could he not? He's a former longtime prolific offensive lineman for for the team was one of one of their best in recent memory and uh and yeah so if there's anyone who knows offensive line play it's it's that guy especially with his expertise with Sean McDermott I also found a lot of this stuff about how McDermott kind of keeps guys on edge pretty interesting um so that's that's maybe something to think about moving forward all right let's uh let's get into this matchup a little bit because I think the Jets are such an interesting team and I didn't think that I would come away with that uh, perspective after starting the film on them. It starts with their quarterback, Mike White, who seems to be a bit of a folk hero in uh, in Jets land right now with, with how he was able to put together a 400-plus yard performance against the Bengals and, and uh, upset them 
at, right after the Bengals just had this huge victory against a big divisional opponent, the Jets just shocked them at, at home. And the, the Jets really put together a nice offensive game plan, and, and White was at the forefront of that. So what I see from this Jets team, and you know the Colts game, their, their run defense really struggled. And so I think the Bills are going to try and attack them just at the, at the early going, make them prove that they're better at it than, than what they showed um, against Indianapolis. But from an offensive perspective is, is what kind of compels me about this game the most. When I look at the Jets, I see a, a team that's, that has some talent on their roster. And they're starting to improve a bit. I think you look at, I mentioned their defensive line a little bit earlier in the show. There are some nice pieces there. Like Quinton Williams, he can he can win one-on-ones like crazy. That dude is good. Um, Franklin Myers at, at the edge, they just gave him a big contract. I think, uh, I think he's a little bit underrated. Uh, they have a good, a, a solid run defender and Fatakasi, their um their one technique. So there there's some there's some talent there and they've got some depth guys that can put together some good pass rushing reps like Sheldon Rankins, who is a former first round pick. Uh he's he's a rotational guy for them. So I think I think there there is at least some talent there. And then you have the linebacker CJ Mosley. Um their their back end is is going to be something that's that's kind of an issue for them moving forward this season. But you know for the most part, you know that that front seems to be somewhat in order. But on offense is is kind of what's compelling here. You know, their wide receiver room is talented and surprisingly deep. I mean, look at how uh, how they've drafted the last couple of years. I mean, they they drafted Denzel Mims in 2020 in the second round. They drafted or in the offseason, they signed Corey Davis. They signed Keelan Cole. They they drafted with one of, uh, I think, the second pick in the second round. They drafted Elijah Moore out of Ole Miss, and they hung on to Jamison Crowder uh, after renegotiating his contract. So that's five different players who have talent, and and for three of those, the veteran options, they've had a certain degree of success in this league. So the one area that I was not expecting to see when I was researching them and watching the film is that this Jets team runs a a whole bunch of four wide receiver stuff. Like the last three weeks, the Jets have run the second most snaps of four wide receiver formations in the league. And that to me was shocking just because you think of the Jets, you're like, oh, they're going to try and they're, they're going to do mostly 11 personnel stuff. And it's just the way that they've always been. But, and that's how they were through the first six weeks of the season. But week seven through nine, uh, they have, run it at the second highest rate. And over the last two weeks, the only team that the Jets trail in four wide receiver formation snaps are the Bills. So and they've had more than the Cardinals. They've had more than uh, than the Packers. And everyone else really doesn't run it. It's basically those four teams right now. And what interests me most about that is because they're talented at receiver, right? I mean, Elijah Moore is a burgeoning prospect and I think they're gonna I think they're going to have uh some opportunities with him moving forward as they start to ramp up his role Corey Davis is likely to return in this game 
and uh, they're, they'll still have Keelan Cole available. They'll still have Denzel Mims available. And Jamison Crowder is another one to keep an eye on who's had some success in the slot uh, for the Jets in the past against the Bills. But the Jets run four wide receiver at a pretty high rate, and they've been incredibly successful. They have run it on 24 snaps over the last three games. And on those 24 snaps, they have passed the ball 22 times. They have completed 82% of those attempts for 156 yards, including, and the, the big spike week here was against the Bengals, where they completed 11 of 12 passes on four receiver sets for 110 yards. Like, they were crushing it then. And what that did, because the Bengals, I don't think they were expecting that too much from the Jets because, you know, I think they ran it maybe six or seven times in the week before that, but zero, literally zero times ahead of uh, week seven, the week before the the Bills played, or I'm sorry, the, the week before the Bengals played the Jets. So I don't know that they were altogether expecting it, but watching watching them kind of operate in that way. And Mike White, he um, he's an interesting quarterback because gets the ball out super quick um, and is mostly accurate with it. However, it's really one of two things with him. It's first read, first read's there, then he'll go to it. If first read isn't there, then he's quickly dumping it down to, to his running back. So a lot of the times when they were spreading out the Bengals, the Bengals were in zone coverage for the most part, and you know if if that first read wasn't there immediately, then boom, Michael Carter, boom, Ty Johnson, just just take the ball and, and get some yards after the catch, and the Bengals just really didn't have an answer for it answer for it the entire game. So I think that's at least an interesting component to this game because, and the and the Jets have have done this because their offensive line is not great, you know they. They drafted Elijah Vera Tucker in the first round. He's been okay. Um, they've been operating without Makai Becton, their franchise left tackle. And their center is not really good. Their right guard isn't really good. Their right, their, Both their tackles ha- have been prone to bad beats. So in getting the ball out quickly and going with this four-receiver formation, it's really putting a different kind of stress on the opponents. So what I'm interested in with this game in particular is because... The Bills have not faced four wide receiver outside of one snap last week. That's it. One snap. I went back and, and looked at all of it. They have not done that. And the only time that they faced a four wide receiver uh, formation was when uh, was uh, last week against the Jaguars, like I mentioned. But they didn't account for it with personnel. They stayed in their base look. And... That might be something to track with this game. Rather than bringing in a fourth cornerback and bringing out either Edmonds or or Milano or a defensive lineman, they went with their nickel, their two corners, their two linebackers, and four defensive linemen. And I, I kind of wonder if the Jets will see that and look to exploit it and put the put the Bills in a position to where they have to put a fourth cornerback that they don't want to put on the field, you know, in, in the rotation here. So that's something to, to monitor moving forward. Also in the sense of 
we don't know what's happening with Tremaine Edmonds just yet. He sat out on both uh, Wednesday and Thursday due to a hamstring injury. Didn't really look to be doing much. Wasn't really uh, working with the trainers on on the uh, on the sidelines. So I don't necessarily know that he's going to be able to play because the signs haven't uh, that the that the signs haven't um, been there for that. And you know, as I'm as I'm looking forward, um, Sean McDermott just spoke on WGR 550 and said that Tremaine Edmonds will not be in the game. Um, so that remains to be seen what they do there, but because Edmonds will be out of the game, you wonder what the bills are going to do As odds are AJ Klein's in the game for Tremaine Edmonds. So when the jets are going to four wide receiver, what do they do? Do they keep AJ Klein in the game or do they bring in a fourth cornerback? Because the way that they played it against the Jaguars is a little bit, it might be a little bit different this time around because you have AJ Klein, who is a legitimately worse athletic player than Tremaine Edmonds. But on the flip side, is he more trustworthy in that defense than, say, Dane Jackson or Saran Neal or Cam Lewis or Jaquan Johnson? Whatever way that they want to go about it with with uh, how they defend these four receiver looks, if the Jets give it to him like I expect them to, then I think that is an interesting component to the game. And it could potentially catch the Bills off guard a couple of times. And, you know, if they don't have the right personnel out there, you know, they're, they're going to miss a lot without Tremaine Edmonds specifically for this game. So that's something to monitor as the Jets offense is starting to find themselves a little bit here. But a lot of this all revolves around Mike White and... The reason why they were able to be prolific against the Bengals is because, like I said before, got the ball out quick, and if the first read wasn't there, he got the ball out of his hands and and didn't allow the offensive line to become a problem. However, I do think there are some legitimate opportunities to force Mike White into an interception. If that first read isn't there and you're also taking away that dump-down option, he does have the penchant to panic a little bit. Also, I only saw maybe on like one or two pass attempts in that Bengals game where he was at his best. And that's what I wanted to watch the Jets. I didn't really see him making more than a half field read. And if I can spot that, you can be darn sure that the Bills are spotting that. So I almost wonder if they start to play him that way and force White to flip his tendency and try and um, try and defeat the Bills by seeing the entire field. But if he's only half-field reading, that's going to make Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde, that, that's going to create some major opportunities for them to break up some passes, play their instincts, and really just try and force some stuff, force some turnovers to flip this game into the Bills' favor to where that they don't have to worry about the offense and the rushing game really just taking over. So I do think the Jets will have some success just because it's a quick passing attack and you can't always get to the guys early enough. But as long as they're good tacklers and you know they, they eventually 
work themselves into those positions where they're taking away that first read and then, you know, really making Mike White become more predictable, that's where the opportunities for interceptions will come along. So I do think the the Bills have a, a pretty good chance in this game. The Jets are, I think, better than we think they are. And I also felt the same way about the Dolphins, and the Dolphins just wound up beating the Ravens out of nowhere. Um, but the Dolphins did play the Bills pretty tough a couple weeks ago, just the same way with the Jaguars. So I'm not expecting a, a walk in the park here. I think the Bills will start to get their offense back on track a little bit. Maybe fewer possessions because they're trying to run the ball a bit more, but I do think they'll try to get their passing attack reestablished and kind of go from there. So for me, I look at this this game, and what it boils down to is the defense being able to limit Mike White and make him into a limited passer the way that they have with so many young quarterbacks in the past. And the, the offense getting ahead enough to be able to make this uh, not, not a super easy game, but a, a fairly uh, easy game for them. So the Bills are 12-point favorites right now. The over-under is 47 and a half. Um, in this game, I'm going to take the Bills to win because I do think the defense will be able to make Mike White look a lot worse than he did against the Bengals a couple of weeks ago. And I'm going to take the Bills. I'll also take them to cover because of the defense. The, the score that I've got here is 27 to 13 because I do think the Bills will put together some scoring drives. I also think the Jets will will do enough to to make them uh, make some of their drives fall short, which leads me to the 27 to 21 score. Maybe some shortened fields for the Bills offense that, that gets them into the end zone a bit easier because the, the defense is forcing turnovers. But however they get there, I think the Bills are going to cover. And the over-under on the game is 47 and a half. I've got the under on that one because I do think the Jets are a little undervalued uh, in terms of how they might be able to stop the Bills, but I also think the Bills might um, stop themselves a bit just based on running the ball a bit more, taking more time off the clock, things like that. And if the Jets are able to move the ball down a little bit, that's going to take away time of possession from the Bills and uh, until it, it gets down to crunch time near the uh, near the goal line red zone area where things get a little bit more condensed, maybe uh, bring on some more difficulties for the Jets on offense and uh, getting them off the field in that way. All right, so yeah, I've got the Bills winning, the Bills covering, and the under in the game. So we'll see what happens in this one. Should be a, a pretty compelling game at, at MetLife Stadium. And um, we'll learn a lot about this team in a, in a few different ways and to see how they respond more than anything to what Sean McDermott kind of laid down um, this past Wednesday and to see if they can be a more efficient running game. Uh, running team that's going to be the biggest thing and who does it we'll see and if it's Singletary if it's Zach Moss if he's able to play or Matt Breida we'll see if the Bills can get back on track and and get their season back on track to where they be, they can become that prolific passing attack that we've seen so often over the past couple of years all right that'll do it for me thanks everyone for joining this episode of the Buffalo Beat the Bills taking on the Jets on Sunday that's where I will talk to you next for our post-game edition where I'll be joined by Matt Beauvais. If you haven't yet, head over to theathletic.com slash thebuffalobeat. Be sure to subscribe and get a, a discount on your yearly subscription. Again, that's going to theathletic.com slash thebuffalobeat. All right, my name is Joe Piscali. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will talk to you after the game on Sunday. See you then.